Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. My guest this week is David Stahl, who has written Operation Barbarossa, Germany's Defeat, and the Eight. Defeat Eight. So that we, we started, I hope I said that correctly. And this week we have, of course, as in Title may suggest it's written on several other books as well, but as the title may suggest of the book, we are going to talk about Operation Barbarossa today. And of course, what was it about the Second World War that made you st- that got you so intrigued in writing so much about it? And so uh, the Second good. World War. Yeah, that's a good question. I never thought when I started out that I was going to end up end up being uh, a professional historian. It was literally just uh, interest at first reading, I guess, like a lot of people. And I guess if that analogy of the more you read, uh, the more questions you have, and uh, mm. that just sort of kept building. And I never really got to that point where I felt satisfied. And then when I did an undergraduate degree in history, that just became, um, you know, that next step. Also, because look, to be honest with you, I didn't know what the next step in life was supposed to be. So I just stayed in university. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the different people I was exposed to. I started to move institution. I did like an exchange in my undergrad. So I went to Boston College and had a great experience there. Not even scholastic, just just seeing a different country, living in a different place. And thought if I wanted to do a master's, it would make sense to do that overseas. So I went to King's College, which has got a dedicated study program for war studies. You know, again, same thing. Lots of amazing people. Also, just some of the students I met uh, went on and moved to Germany because I thought, look, if I'm going to do this at a PhD level, obviously I need to do some German. And I already luckily had a big base of uh, good German friends, so that kind of made it easy. Long story short, uh, I did that and got to the end of it and felt like this is great. But I knew I could only ever do this if I stayed in Germany. So I did stay in Germany. And then, you know, as I wrote a second book and then a third, I just was in the area. I was working as a teacher and then a job came up back in Australia, a job I just couldn't go past and I'd sort of established myself in the field. So um, yeah, it all just sort of worked out in the end, but it wasn't really some big master plan. It was just a bit of luck and a lot of uh, hard work. And I want to begin because I think it's important that we understand a little bit background of what led up to Barbaros as well. So I want to begin mm. with talking about German-Soviet relations from 1918. Of course, and then we're going to talk about what changed for the fascist government and Adolf Hitler came to power and of leading up the Ribbentrop, so Molotov line as well. Sorry, Pasha, yes. not line. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Uh, so there's a, a, you know, I think it's a fascinating sort of 20-year period when you consider that these two countries fought a major war, and I think it's sometimes underestimated, although a lot of good historiography in the last sort of 10 years has sought to address the the war in the East uh, in the First World War, which has always been, at least in the Anglo-American world, I think, played down because Anglo-Americans aren't serving there. But the scale of the war um, and the ferocity with which it's prosecuted, it's also non-typical for the First World War in the sense that it's not trenches. It's not that classic idea of what World War I-style warfare is. It's much more... 
uh, fluid and there are large scale battles even just beyond Tannenberg, which is the really the, the sort of the famous one. Um, and then in that post-war period, these countries, you know, share that that loss in a sense. I mean, the Russians are defeated in the First World War. Germany is defeated. Um, you know, nominally Russia stands on the sides of the victors, but they lost. They were, you know, removed from the war. They suffered a terrible peace treaty. And then, of course, you've got the Bolshevik rule there and all the terrible things that are going to follow there. First of all, famine uh, and civil war. And then you've got Stalin and you're going to have these five year programs, which are just so, uh, you know, that they achieve a great deal for the Soviet Union, but they come at great cost. And of course, there's collectivization. And behind all of that, you've got uh, a program that's going to start with the Germans that's going to see German technical assistance, which is to say uh, military professionals, secretly going to the Soviet Union to test new weapons. And this is all, of course, not part of the Versailles Treaty. This is not supposed to happen, but that's exactly what they do. They're allowed to go there by the Soviets. Soviets are getting access to the technology um, and the Germans are getting the chance to test all of this, um, which is kind of extraordinary when you think about it, uh, especially if you know that First World War history and the history that's going to come, the fact that they're both developing weapon systems together. And this is going to end once Hitler uh, takes power. Um, but that period is really significant. A lot of the middle-ranked officers, maybe higher, a little bit higher than middle-ranked, are going to be the commanders who will lead German forces into the Soviet Union in 1941. So people like Guderian, who's one of the most famous, but there are numerous others, they were in the Soviet Union for a period. Um, and some of them don't go to the Soviet Union, but still meet senior Soviet officers because some of the Soviet officers come to Germany to undertake uh, general staff courses. And so they meet that way. Um, and then, of course, once Hitler's in, the relations between the two change for the worst. Um, the, the, the rhetoric in the respective newspapers is largely negative. Um, and then ultimately, then you have this huge change, the one you referred to there, this Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which are the two foreign ministers who in the week basically before the war in Poland begins, uh, they sign a non-aggression pact. Uh, and of course, that's the most benign part of the pact, because the other real uh, feature of that agreement is the non-public the sort of secret side where they're dividing up Eastern Europe between them uh, with their respective spheres of influence. And that will then become uh, the basis of uh, their relationship for the next uh, 18 months as each side gobbles up their parts, either directly in the war in Poland or subsequently with the winter war for the Soviets taking parts of Finland. And of course, the Baltic states will disappear in 1940 and uh, Bessarabia in 1940. Um, while the Germans have a free hand themselves to not just defeat France, but take over the Balkans and uh, basically solidify their political union with various uh, fascist regimes in Eastern Europe. And all of that sets the stage for what will be Barbarossa, where basically, um, yeah, Hitler's going to betray the Soviet Union, largely because he sees, and maybe we're getting into the prehistory of Barbarossa here, um, but he sees no possibility to defeat Great Britain, and he believes Great Britain is holding it across the channel because Soviet Russia exists. It's the last continental power. It's the only way that Hitler is going to have, um, or sorry, Churchill is going to have any way of defeating Hitler. 
So he sort of invested, this is all in Hitler's mind, he's invested all his hopes in Soviet Russia. And Hitler concludes two things. One, I can remove that last hope for the British in order to make peace by destroying the Soviet Union. And I can seize all of those resources and this so-called Lebensraum, this living space in the East by taking uh, Soviet lands. And it has to be also said, especially if your listeners know anything about Barbarossa, it's not the case that Germany invades because this is going to be hard or it's going to be a tough war or a big threat. It's largely in this period because it's going to be so easy. At least that's how it looks to the Germans. And, and frankly, that's how it also looks to the Anglo-Americans as well. The British, the the, the American uh, secret reports that they're providing to Roosevelt and to Churchill, these are wholly negative. They give Germany, or sorry, they give Soviet Russia almost no chance against the Germans. They measure their survival in terms of weeks or months. Um, so it's not just the Germans who underestimate uh, what this undertaking is going to be. And the track record, again, perhaps if we just look back over those 20 years, Soviet Russia has, first of all, lost the First World War. They had a terrible civil war. They were involved in the Spanish Civil War. That didn't go very well. Uh they had had the Winter War that against Finland. That didn't go very well. Even when they invade Poland, because part of that Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is an invasion of Poland, so the 17th of September, two weeks after the German invasion, the Soviets struggle to make their goals. This is against a wholly defeated Polish army. So there's really nothing with the exception perhaps of the war that Japan and Soviet Russia fight, with that one exception, which the world is not focused on, there's a pretty consistent uh, history of Russia, or Soviet Russia performing poorly. And this just and, underlines... And as well, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but that was as well, the Soviet invasion of Poland in 1918, or 1921, I think, was also a failure and a victory for Poland. So they had a, a lot of series of defeat. And of course, you mentioned the Winter War as well. I want to talk about, because this the failure, mm. not necessarily a failure, but it was kind of convincing to Hitler that the Soviets would be, could be easily defeated when he saw that they had an alliance with Finland after this winter war. Indeed, yeah, no, the winter war is another example, also because, you know, Finnish forces are smaller, techni technically rather impoverished, and uh, conversely, we see you know, Nazi Germany has done the one thing that no one was able to do in the last great war. They have broken through the so-called Maginot line. They've defeated the French and they've done it all in six weeks. Um, it, you know, this idea of Blitzkrieg, although that's a word that um, no one was you know, there's a whole literature now on how Blitzkrieg is a, a word we use, but it's not a word that was used at the time. There was no concept as such of Blitzkrieg. And Karl-Heinz Frieser and people like that have done a lot of work to show how even this invasion of France in 1940 um, was not planned as such. They're planning for huge amounts of concrete, huge amounts of barbed wire. They don't know themselves what sort of success they're going to have. But the fact that they have it, and they have it kind of consistently, you know, Poland is destroyed, mm. France is the great example, but then, of course, there's, in parallel to France, Denmark and Norway, later on there's going to be the whole Balkan mm. campaign. It just looks like the German Wehrmacht is kind of... And unlike in 1914, when they fight the Russians, there's not going to be a 
a two-front war here. I mean, there are a few divisions that are stationed on the coast of France, but let's be real, in 1941, there's no prospect of uh, a British invasion. Even 42-43, as we know, uh, Churchill famously says, fiascos, sorry, uh, plans that lead to disasters benefit no one but Hitler. Um, so, you know, the, the, the difficulties of basically this cross-channel operation are very well known to the British and indeed to the Germans. So there is a very good springboard for concentrating the vast bulk of the Wehrmacht against Soviet Russia. Um, and it's my understanding as well with the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact that there are a lot of communist sympathizers who are kind of angry at Soviet Union for doing this pact and this agreement that the, it's not an aggression pact because they were felt like it was betrayal of their view in, uh, as anti-Germany. So lot, it's when they finally attacked Barbarossa attached to the Soviet Union in Barbarossa, it was kind of, I understand that a lot of communist sympathizers were kind of relieved that they, it actually happened. Yeah, true. Uh, uh, there's there's a lot of communist sympathizers. There's also a lot of people on the other side of that, so fascist regimes, and they're really struggling as well to understand, you know, how is this possible? For example, all those white Russians who, after the Civil War, have had to flee um uh, obviously Russia, it's now communist Russia, uh, a lot of them end up firstly in Turkey and they go from Turkey out to the west of Europe. Um, and these guys tend to be ardent anti-communists um, and hate Soviet Russia. And naturally they find Mussolini and Hitler to be, for them, the, the perfect leaders because they represent such virulent anti-communism in the Spanish Civil War, in their own countries, and then the rhetoric against Soviet Russia. So, of course, when Molotov-Ribbentrop comes along, you're absolutely correct. It's confusing for a lot of communists, but it's also confusing for a lot of white Russians and, indeed, fascist regimes generally, having to explain this kind of stuff. I mean, Hitler himself and and Goebbels, they they, they grapple with this problem. How do you sell someone on the enemy and then strike a deal with them? Um, in fact, you are now trying to tell them, tell your population it's the Anglo-Americans we need to fight. Uh, and Soviet Russia, there is a trade deal with them as well. So you've got now a great deal of trade. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the virtue of, I guess, having a closed media is you can do those kinds of things, but it does require some mental gymnastics. And we spoke about this in the Second World War episode, which I think made a few months ago, I think now. And because it came up that, you know, Hit Stalin would do things for Hitler that he would never do for his allies in like Churchill and Americans. He would never do things for Hitler, his good buddy, that he would never do for when he's changed size. You mean Stalin would do things for in the period of the pact? Yeah, under the period of the pact and their agreement. If we, if you, I don't know if just I had him to do for Jimmy, but he mentioned how, mm. especially on, on the, the Battle of Norwich as well, when that came, he would allow Nazi or Wehrmacht fleets to a station up in the north where which would, and then there would be stuff he would never do for his allies when he changed, again, when he changed sides. I think one of the things we have to remember on Stalin's side is, and we didn't, I didn't mention it in that interim period, but it does inform his in a sense, desperation, uh, he didn't 
foresee, because no one could foresee, that he would ever be fighting against Nazi Germany on a one-front war, because there's always the geography of France. France is there. And uh, the other side to that is he has, through the Great Terror, massively purged the Red Army. And he didn't just attack physically large numbers of officers. You know, those figures are sort of famous, the number of marshals, the number of various generals. I don't have them all in my head. But, you know, it's a real gutting of the Red Army. But he attacks the ideas that they were coming up with. So Tukashevsky and this whole idea of deep battle, this is a very progressive form of warfare. Um, And when we look at what those components are, although I don't want to oversimplify it, a lot of the hallmarks of what we will see in the Second World War seem to be embodied in this idea of deep battle. Now, when Stalin's purge of the Red Army begins, and it begins with people like Tukashevsky and a lot of his close confidants, and then it just mushrooms on because the more you torture, the more names you'll get. They've gutted that whole progressive wing of the army. They've reverted the Red Army back to a kind of, because this guy's counter-revolutionary now, so his ideas are counter-revolutionary. So what do people think is the safe answer? Uh, hoof and foot uh, basic infantry forces, something way back to World War I-style tactics. That's a real problem for Soviet Russia. And it's a problem because when in 1940 France falls, it's not as though Stalin and the senior command, people like Zhukov and so on, can ignore what has just happened there. The, the speed and the devastating loss of France, and this was a great global power with a first-rate army, supposedly, behind the Maginot Line, supported by the British Expeditionary Force, plus all the various forces that in six months they'd been able to bring in from the colonies, and it's gone. And they, there is an analysis of this in Soviet Russia and a recognition this has the whole what the Germans are doing to our deep battle ideas. Suddenly, the whole thing turns again. And we're re-embracing that. But ask the question, how many Soviet commanders asked about the what has been a counter-revolutionary idea for two years that people got killed for now want to embrace those ideas again when asked to please embrace them? It's incredible. Again, mental gymnastics. But they are restructuring, again, the Soviet army between the middle of 1940 and before Barbarossa begins. It's supposed to be a two-year reorganization. So they're in the middle of it when Barbarossa hits. And, you know, you've got this huge problem of a lot of new officers who are just political for the most part. They 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 don't have their own ideas. I mean, any military professionals listening to uh, podcasts like this about what warfare is know that uh, usually a good performance officer knows what his task is, but he's left to some degree to implement the best manner of achieving that. But of course, in Soviet Russia, nobody wants to have any autonomy at all because autonomy could equal a firing squad. Uh, so when you're asked to do something, you often want that written down and be prescriptive so that no matter what you do, you can always say, well, I was just following orders. I've got them right here. That's not really how militaries work, um, but it's the product of the, the purge and it's going to come back to bite them in Barbarossa when, of course, they're being hit by such a fast-paced form of warfare and having to innovate, often because command and control is broken down, and nobody knows really how to behave, either because they're not really military officers, they're just political hacks, or they are military officers, but the acculturation of the last few years has been never make any decisions, always get things in writing. Um, and it just undercuts performance. So there's a there's a doctrine and a training and a reorganization of the Red Army that is just not matched by the human element. And of course, you need to have both for this to function well. 
So let's talk about the eve of the invasion of Barbarossa. And I do believe that before the invasion as well, the Soviet played a war game where they actually, in this case scenario, they lost in the war game as well. But let's talk about the eve of the operation because they were struggling in telling Stalin that the Wehrmacht has invaded that actually... That, and they, of course, as we know, he did not believe this for a second. He would not, when he first got to know about the invasion, he would not let them fire back because he does not believe that his good buddy Hitler would invade him at all. Yeah, so, I mean, Soviet Russia or Stalin is going to receive uh, many, many dozens of warnings. Um, I mean, they can see for themselves that planes are flying over. They, you know, there's even a few German defectors. There's all kinds of information. There's the British subtly planning, uh, shuttling intelligence. They can't say where it's coming from, but they've got this cracked German codes and they've been able to send some of that, but they don't want to say how they're getting it, where they're getting it. And of course, Stalin's looking at Churchill's messages and saying, oh, this is just self-interested. You're just trying to drag me into this war that you're already in and I'm not going to fall for it by by taking the Germans, who are my, my allies, to believe that they're going to invade I mean, there was a lot of self-deception for Stalin. One thing that's not true, uh, according to more recent historiography, it isn't the case that once this is announced, Stalin sort of descends into this, you know, uh, inability to respond and locks himself away for days on end. That's definitely an older narrative that doesn't seem to be the case at all. I mean, Stalin is certainly shocked by what happens and he's certainly proven very wrong and Soviet Russia is in a terrible position. I mean, there are trains going across the border full with resources for Nazi Germany on the 22nd of June 1941 because he just does not see it coming. He doesn't believe any of the um, uh, warnings. There is some mobilization, some sort of secret mobilization that is forced by some of the commanders who are basically saying, look, we can do this. We can do it secretly enough for the Germans not to see it. So there are a few movements on the Russian side, but it doesn't change the narrative that Stalin still doesn't believe the Germans are actually going to betray him. Uh, He's invested so much in this. And look, the perfidity of Hitler, the one thing you have to say is uh, Stalin's not the first person to have been duped by the guy because he will, I mean, as we've seen, for him, pieces of paper mean nothing. He'll sign them insofar as anyone else abides by them, but he'll feel entirely uh, free to, uh, you know, make war, which he's been doing, really. He entertains these ideas as early as uh, July 1940. So he's been planning this for a long time. Um, and, you know, in a sense, he has uh, the awareness that the single most important part of, you know, Germany's military arsenal is not the Air Force, it's not the Navy, it's the land forces. You need the Navy and you need the Air Force to continue the war against Great Britain. Uh, And he realises, this is Churchill, oh, sorry, this is Hitler, gosh. Um, He realises that if this is going to be a long war, if if Churchill doesn't make... uh, peace with him, which Churchill is quite openly not going to do, and he's very adamant on the radio uh, about doing about not doing that, then Hitler realises he's going to be locked into the kind of war Germany was locked into in the First World War to a blockade. Now, that blockade was very effective in the First World War. So Hitler is aware he's able to subvert this blockade 
because of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact delivering him everything he needs. But it's not a one-way street. It's not just resources coming out of Soviet Russia that he needs. He's having to send what? Machine tools, largely. Um, So high-tech pieces of equipment that basically manufacture weapons. Uh, Now, he is way behind on his deliveries. He's making sure that the Soviets keep sending theirs, and he is delaying his because he knows that he sends more of these things that's going to be used against him. At the same time, the hope is, and the plan is quite explicit, Barbarossa will be a short campaign. No one is planning for anything beyond basically a summer campaign. So maybe in some Hitler idea, these machine tools will all just be recaptured. They're not going to be used in some long war. At the same time, he doesn't want to transport them. Um, But as I said before, this is going to be an easy operation. The Wehrmacht is enormous. Um, He's going to be able to assemble an invasion force of some 3.2 million men. And there's going to be a lot of Axis allies getting involved as well. I mean, the Romanians are bought into the planning. The Finns are bought into the planning. They together constitute between them uh, 450,000 and 320,000 soldiers. That's enormous by Second World War standards. These aren't these are countries that are largely mobilizing most of their male population, certainly in Finland's case. Uh, And then there'll be more uh, German allies joining. The Hungarians will send 60,000. The Italians will send 60,000. The Slovakians send 40,000. Croatia will send 5,000. And then you'll get a a whole division out of Spain, the Spanish Blue Division. And then there'll be, in all these occupied countries, there are still fascist regimes who basically initiate volunteer programs. So you actually get French on the Eastern Front, Belgians, Dutch, uh, Danes. You've got Norwegians there, which I I, I, I no doubt know you know. Um, so it's quite the, the the group. It's more than 4 million if you put it all together, and that's the invasion force. There's never been an invasion in, in history of warfare that is equal what Barbarossa is going to become. And, of course, then the Soviets are going to have to meet that. So it's quite the clash of titans. Hmm. So let's talk about, of course, you had the first one of the first battles that they faced, and that is by the British Marine and the Battle of the Baltics, which... I believe happens fairly early on. So let's talk about, because as you mentioned, the Greek Marine is as well a part of this. So let's talk about the, the one of the first, but I believe this is one of the first battles, the Battle of the Baltics. Very true. So basically for people um, trying to make sense of all of this, and it's not so easy, I understand, if someone like me just starts talking and we don't have maps in front of us to sort of follow all of this, the, as I said, this is an enormous invasion force. The Germans divide it into three army groups, Army Group North, Army Group Center, Army Group South. And Army Group North is driving up, as you say, uh, into the Baltic states. Um, that's the smallest of the three army groups. And uh, in some ways, it's um, perhaps one of the most difficult because the German army is basically divided into two armies. It's not formally divided, but in practice. That is to say, um, within these army groups, there are two basic kinds of formations. There are big armies. So there are 13 of these armies. Think of those armies as wagons and horses and marching infantry. In other words, it all moves at the same speed as Napoleon's army or any other medieval army, as fast as they can march, as fast as the horses and the wagons move. The second army would be panzer groups. That is another dedicated formation 
that there are four of these panzer groups, one in army group north, two in army group center, and one in army group south, and they are fully motorized. So you can start to see the problem. These two armies are moving at radically different speeds. So Herpener is the commander of panzer group four, and that is uh, directed into the Baltics. Um, it explodes forward on Barbarossa um, and, and on the on the first day, and it immediately outpaces the marching infantry. There are two armies in Army Group North that are supposed to support it, but it's extremely difficult when they're operating at 100, 200 kilometers ahead of the marching infantry. Keep in mind, the the backbone of the German army is, is still infantry. So maybe if I break that down another way, there are 150 German divisions in Operation Barbarossa, only 30 of which are motorized in panzer. That means only 30 of which make up these, um, these panzer groups, these four panzer groups. Everyone else, 130 divisions, are across these 13 infantry armies. So in the early weeks of Barbarossa, what happens and what you'll see on a map, if you did have a map and you said, oh, well, where is the German front line on the, let's say, a week into the campaign at the end of June 1941 or uh, at the Battle of Smolensk in August of 1941, what you're actually seeing on the map is not where the German army is. That's one of the mistakes I always made when I read my first few books on this and thinking, well, gosh, the German army got a long way very quickly. Um, that's just the vanguard of this uh, German army, and it's only a really very small uh, number of of their actual forces. It's going to take weeks of punishing marches for this main bulk of the German army to reach those front lines, which means two things, really importantly. Those early battles are being fought by a very finite part of the German army, and all the losses suffered, losses either through battle or losses because the distances are huge. If you look on a map and look at, you know, uh, where the German border is with the Soviet Union, and then imagine marching through Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, up toward Leningrad, it's quite a distance. But especially, uh, sometimes my students dispute that. They say, oh, look at this, David, it's only 700, 800 kilometers. And I say two things. It's not a modern car. Modern cars go very long distances before they need services and, and so on. These are these are vehicles designed in the 1930s, right? These roads aren't very good and nobody drives a linear distance. It's not like you get in your car on the highway and drive to Leningrad. You are, as a if you're a tank operator, you're operating all the time. You're moving in and out of, for, uh, out of cover. You're driving across terrain, then you're re reversing a bit, then you're moving up. So the wear and tear on the engines, the demand for oil, the demand for fuel, and the demand for munitions, it dominates the supply, and it is really, really hard work for uh, uh, for Panzer Group 4, which is Herpener's Panzer Group, to keep moving, and, and uh, it's both the losses they suffer, they get into some really difficult encounters. Um, the macro story of Barbarossa is German success, but if you zoom into the day-by-day, -day, there are some tough battles along the way, really tough battles. Um, and so they're losing forces in those and they're losing more, much more through just the attrition of movement. Also, just keep in mind in the Baltic states, these are impoverished, as I said, in terms of the infrastructure, but there's a lot of swamps. There's a lot of uh, dense forest. And there is a lot of, you'll see this also further if you want to go through other theaters. But if you go down to the Ukraine, uh, you'll see a lot of um, dust 
right? And that's a huge problem for the Germans because as you drive a tanker over these, they are roads, they're just not highways, but they're roads, it kicks up an enormous amount of dust. So much so that I've seen a few photos of people sitting on a tank, taking a photo, and there's a vehicle right in front that you can see basically through the, the haze, through the cloud that they're driving in. Now, the enormous amount of dust is going into those engines because it, there is an air filter, but the air filters are very quickly overwhelmed. And one of the things I noticed when I was researching all of this was the spike, the enormous spike in oil. And I was trying to figure out why is there such a spike? They must know what these engines consume and they're consuming far more oil than normal. I wonder what's going on here. Maybe it's just because they're being operated over long, long periods. Tanks might be driving, you know, 18 hours of a day. But it turns out what was happening was, and finally I found a report that made it quite explicit, the oil, sorry, the, the, the dust is getting in through these air filters and therefore it's getting into the engines. And the only way you can remove it is to try and flush it out. So they just put lots of oil into the engine trying to flush out the dust. Of course, it doesn't really work. The more sand you put in that engine, the quicker that engine's going to die. And that happens within weeks of the campaign beginning that you start to see uh, Guderian and Hort, that's some of the other big Panzer Group commanders uh, in the center, they are asking for hundreds of new tank engines. Well, that doesn't work because the German industry doesn't produce more engines than tanks. It's all built in symmetry. But the problem is they're losing their engines in the East because of the dust and they don't have production lines to replace them. They also don't have logistics to quickly transport and then retrofit new tank engines into the tanks. These are all part of the problems that undermine the uh, German advance, certainly once you're getting uh, four, six, eight weeks into the campaign. So those problems are replicated through the front, but they're definitely also apparent in the Baltics. And of course, you landed that quite nicely in there because you mentioned the oil supply. So, and of course, another thing that Hitler was low on was oil supply. Of course, it was sanctioned by the Americans who hadn't entered the war yet. And of course, the tortoises were, had plenty of oil, so we needed tortoises as well, which was a nice way for Operation Barbarossa that he would, of course, in the as far as I understand, it never made it to Cortesus, but it did as well try to reach the Cortesus through Barbarossa, I think. Yes, well, Barbarossa is, um, if we went back to the planning stage, they do set goals for where they want to get. But look, the most important thing is, because people sometimes say to me, look at the size of Soviet Russia. What was what were they thinking? And the, the simple answer is, and I'm not making any uh, justification or explanation, it is still uh, hubris, plain and simple, but the idea is if we punch through the borders, that's where the Russian or the Soviet army will be, and we enact big encirclements near those borders, we will destroy the vast bulk of the Soviet army, and then we're in what they would call an exploitation phase. What, what ultimately ends up happening is, yes, there are very big battles at the border and a lot of success, uh, but mainly in the centre. And the reason is simple, for anyone who heard me say that before, there are two panzer groups in the center and one in each of the flanking army groups. It's much easier to enact an encirclement if you have a left and a right to come together, a pincer movement, as we call it, to encircle those forces. Well, Herpener and Kleist, the two north and south uh, panzer group commanders, they don't they have to basically split 
their Panzer group in order to enact this. And that's problematic actually also because those two Panzer groups are about a third smaller than Hort and Guderian, the two in the center. So they're both more powerful and they act in unison. So you really see the the greatest success over the summer period taking place, not surprisingly, in the central part of Russia, which is uh, moving at a much faster rate into Soviet uh, Russia than you will see, for example, down in the south. Uh, the, the army group south, that's Rundstedt's army group, makes less progress simply because he has two problems. He has less forces uh, in terms of panzer forces, motorized units, but he's also confronting the bulk. That's where the that's where the Soviet counter planning believed is the most likely place for the Germans to attack. So they've concentrated most of their forces there. Now Rundstedt still does make progress, but he is lagging behind uh, the northern armies. And maybe just to return to that earlier point, uh, the problem is. Yes, they've enacted these big border battles, very much as the Barbarossa plan stipulates. What the Germans completely misunderstand, and really, uh, I think even historians for some decades afterwards misunderstood, is that the whole Soviet system is largely militarized right from the very beginning. So Soviet Russia has a mobilization base of about 14 million men. And within the first week of Barbarossa, they are calling to the colors millions of men. Not less than 5.3 million men are told, come to your mobilization stations. So in the month of July, they're going to raise 13 armies. This is almost unprecedented force generation. In the month of August, they're going to raise 14 more armies. And these armies, they're not as good as the armies that preceded them. They're not as well trained. But these men do have training. And the Soviet Union has vast stocks of uh, material. They basically never throw anything away. And people sometimes say, oh, yeah, but they're 1920s tanks. 1920s tanks will kill you. Uh, you know, it's not like they don't kill you. And this is such a huge front. It's not as though Germans have got tanks everywhere. The Germans invade with 3,500 tanks. Spread across the entirety of Eastern Europe, that's actually not very many tanks, however much that might sound to people. And again, they're concentrated into panzer groups. So the Soviets can have local superiority, depending on where you are on the Eastern Front, because it's so vast. But the most important point is two things. Those panzer groups are now operating at a great distance ahead of the vast bulk of the German army. So all that firepower that is artillery, they don't really have. They're operating on a shoestring of logistics, and they are going to be meeting these new echelon armies that have been raised and formed as they begin the second phase, which they erode thought was going to be the exploitation phase, but it's not an exploitation phase. They're basically into what we call the second echelon. As these Soviet forces form up, they might be forming up in Smolensk or in Kiev or wherever, the German forces are encountering them. Um, and these begin much more protracted, more difficult for the German battles, they're still going to be successful, the Germans. The Germans are successful throughout Barbarossa. People probably know this. The real question, though, is what is the cost? What is the cost to them? Those costs are twofold. One, what I said before, you're losing forces in a very finite area. These are well-trained guys, and you don't have a lot of them. Um, uh, you know, even basic skills we take for granted, like Everyone can drive a car, can't they? No, not back then. Not everyone can drive a car. Certainly they can't drive tanks. Um, and if you're losing that skill, well, how do you replace it, right? It's a finite resource. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true not just of the 
the tanks, it's all the supporting equipment. Uh, trucks are at a premium. They have scraped the bottom of the barrel in order to make Barbarossa as mobile as they possibly can. Even then, those trucks, those jeeps, those uh, cars and things are concentrated overwhelmingly in the panzer groups. So if you are able to destroy them, and they are able to destroy them, why are they to destroy them because the breakthroughs take part on narrow areas of the front and a lot of soviet forces don't even know that they're technically behind german lines command and control has been lost they're just operating in their area they've lost uh sort of situational awareness but they know where the roads are if they go to those roads what do they see the, the german tanks have already driven past now it's the thin-skinned vehicles and they're prime targets they've no real defense and it's really problematic for the Germans if they're going to lose these supply columns because they need munitions and they need fuel to keep the attack moving forward. And so the Soviets can have some impact there. It's not, it's not that the German army is being stopped in its tracks, but those costs are not ones that long-term the Germans can bear. Their Achilles heel is motorization. Uh, so it's everything from the roads themselves to whatever, we sometimes people call them partisan activities, but there's not really partisans in the summer of 1941. And yet there's a hell of a lot of guys behind the front who are killing Germans because they're actual Soviet officers and, and, and men who are just existing behind the front lines because they haven't yet been captured. Because, and maybe this is my final point, I know I'm talking a lot, when we talk about, and if you encounter these battles in books, we will talk about the Battle of Minsk, right? That's this mm. first big encirclement in the in the central part of the front. But, you know, and then we move on to the second big encirclement, we call that uh, Smolensk. We talk about the Battle of Kiev, but the names are bad. I've realized teaching students, the names suggest to people, oh, so this is happening in that city called Minsk. No, no, no. We probably should have called it the Battle of Belarus, right? So think about the size and the scale of that country with a lot of virgin forest, again, some swamps and really poor infrastructure. There's no way you're actually coping through those in the 10 days that that battle takes place and rounding them all up. They Germans do capture a lot. There's even an official figure, I think it's published on the 8th of July, which says we captured 300,000 Soviet prisoners of war. a fine number and it's huge and yes they do capture lots but there are still tens of thousands running around in those forests not captured armed trained and they're really at war with germany and that's a big problem for germany to sustain this they've got to have a huge rear area the further they advance the more they've got to advance through their logistical apparatus in order to Take the next stage. So when you start seeing if we, you know, advance this and probably we'll get there, but, you know, the autumn campaign, which they inevitably end up in. So there's another whole phase to this in October called Operation Typhoon, driving toward Moscow. One of the problems they have is building up the supplies to relaunch this big offensive. Um, and that's obviously taxing their uh, logistical network. Um, partly because the roads are so terrible, but maybe a quick word on the real bulk of German supplies is going to have to come across the railroads. And one of the things that the listeners may or may not know is rail in the Soviet Union is a wider gauge than in the rest of Europe. Um, that makes sense. If you want to traverse huge distances, you build bigger locomotives, right? You have it on a bigger sure. scale. You have a wider track. That means the Germans have got to convert 
somehow this. Now, in theory, that's super simple. The Germans think about it. It's not like they don't know about this gauge difference. They know that they're going to have to move the vast bulk of their supplies on rail, but they also think this is going to be a very short battle, right? Fought largely at the borders. But nevertheless, there are dedicated uh, military units who are conversion units. Their basic thing is, this is super simple. You just lift up the pins of those big train lines, move them closer together, hammer them back down again, and you can run a train on it. You don't have to overthink it. It's going to be really simple, except two problems. Number one, the Luftwaffe are extremely effective. They have themselves been targeting Soviet logistics, destroying the infrastructure. Number two, the Soviets are very good at uh, this kind of scorched earth policy. So what these conversion teams end up with is not a simple process of, well, just narrow the lines. It's a complete rebuild which means much heavier machinery, much slower tempo, um, many more uh, construction workers, and they need the heavy materials to be bought out to do this. They end up doing improvised work, typically, whatever they can cobble together, which just means that when the trains do finally run on these, they have to go at extremely slow temperature, uh, uh, ex- extremely slow um, speeds because they will otherwise derail. It's a really shoddy job. And of course, again, There are still people in the rear areas. Train lines are extremely easy targets, right? Um, All of this just complicates this Barbarossa uh, operation. If the whole thing is predicated on being a short campaign, and it is, the timing is six to 10 weeks, the fact that it's going to go into the autumn, by definition, and other historians may disagree with this, but by definition, Barbarossa fails. Because Barbarossa is supposed to be a short, sharp, camp, short, sharp campaign to end uh, Soviet military resistance in the East. And make no mistake, there's no contingency in German planning for something else. There's no sense that, well, if we're fighting the Soviets into 1942, that's okay. No, no one talks about this. There's no military plans for this. There's no political plans for this. The whole thing is sold on being a, you know, a, a, a blitzkrieg, a lightning war, like all their other wars, although they don't use this word blitzkrieg. Um, But that's the basic style of the campaign. The fact that that's going to fail, not because they lose some big battle, but the fact that they cannot subdue Soviet Russia in the summer of 41, or even in the autumn, this is catastrophic for Germany. You are now locked into a, a naval and air war in the West, which is high intense for industrial resources, highly intensive, and a completely different production line, and you were locked into a high-intensity war of millions, that's the size of these armies, in the East, with no real ability to end it because those panzer groups, which are so important to driving German forces forward, they have largely lost a lot of their motorization. By the end of the summer, to give you a basic idea, Guderian and Hort, the two biggest panzer group commanders, they are down to one third. This is the end of the summer of 41, one third of their tanks. That's all they have left, right? So while people talk about, oh, they could have done this, they could have done that, and all these different ideas... Part of the problem is just because you see on a map or Panzer Group 2 and Panzer Corps and Panzer Divisions, they're a shadow of what they were. And even those that exist, remember, they've driven through all this infrastructure. That dust is in their engines. Those engines have got 150 kilometers left in them. 
Um, so there's a whole lot of complicating factors that were never planned for that Germany can't change gears on quickly. Uh, they can't just suddenly produce thousands more tanks or thousands more trucks. They are compromised in terms of their ability to receive the raw materials to change or do anything. So long-term, the implications of losing in Barbarossa, and this comes back to your original point, about oil, yes, but about so much more than just oil. Um, oil is the great uh resource that Hitler talks about that we all know about, but there's a vast number of minerals and raw materials that the Soviet Union has that they are now very aware of trying to get um, that uh, is conditional to Germany being able to continue the war. And even then, just look at the sheer population base of Germany. You know, uh, it cannot compete with Soviet Russia until... 200 million, uh, the United States, obviously the British Empire, they're going to be outproduced. Um, so again, Barbarossa always had to succeed. And the fact that it doesn't has dire implications for the German war effort. Yeah, you mentioned POWs a while ago, and I want to talk about, you know, the POWs, both the Russian and the German side, because needless to say, if, if you were taught by either Germans or by Soviet Union, Forces, you were not necessarily in for a good time. No, that's very, very true. Look, I remember one of the earliest books I read on this, and unfortunately, one of the best books ever written about, uh, uh, I think, German history of the Second World War, but it's never been translated. And unfortunately, there's too many. Um, is a guy named Christian Streit who wrote a book, it came out in 1979, and a few editions since, or sort of um, updating it. Uh, and it's um, called Dein Kameraden, and it's basically charting how the Germans treated Soviet prisoners of war. Um, and it's quite astonishing. Basically, in that opening six months, if you look at Barbarossa and Typhoon and put it all together, um, I can't remember the exact number of total uh, Soviet prisoners of war, but it's in excess of three million. And uh, if I told you that... By February of 1942, fully 60% of all of those Soviet prisoners of war are already dead. Now, that's a figure well in excess of 2 million. Um, and hang on, not well in excess. You can see I'm a historian, not a mathematician. I'm trying to do numbers in my head. But it's about 2 million, I think, um, that have been killed in that period. That's an astonishing rate of death when you consider something like the Holocaust is industrial killing with, you know, dedicated institutions or, or facilities that, that kill people and so on. They have somehow managed to kill such a vast number. And, and so the question becomes, like, how did they do that? In the first instance, exactly your point. The extent to which Germans take prisoners of war, certainly they do. There's a huge number of them taken. But there's also um, there's ubiquitous evidence to suggest uh, in the sort of bloodlust and the brutality of this whole thing, they didn't always. Then marching them to the camps, uh, these were often death marches. There was often dedicated sort of kept at the bottom of the thing. Anyone who can't keep up is shot. Then once they get to the camps, this is really where the, the, the killing begins. Um, these... We use words like camps, and they're sometimes given these kinds of designations. Um, but you have to picture, because we're typically from a Western world, and imagining World War II, I grew up on looking at films like The Great Escape and so on, where you saw a prisoner of war camp, you know, with huts and kitchens and all that kind of infrastructure. This is not what you've got in the Soviet Union. Picture a field, maybe with barbed wire around it, and that might be it. And these guys... 
are uh, forced to dig into the ground. There, there's no shelter. Um, you get immediate problems in this. First of all, they're not being fed. They've got no medical treatment, um, which will lead to starvation. That will quickly then weaken everybody. If there's any diseases in these camps, no hygiene, no bathrooms. It, of course, there's going to be disease very, very quickly. Uh, then that will start wiping them out. And of course, the real killer, once it starts getting cold with no shelter, uh, in addition to their weakened state, the cold, uh, you know, just decimates these camp populations. Um, there are some famous collections of uh, Germans who are in charge in various capacities of camps like this, who write just the most harrowing things about and 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 often unsympathetic uh, of just what exactly they're seeing. I mean, I can remember things that, you know, they, they, they do bring some food out and they have to beat them away with sticks and they put this cauldron down and they don't issue it. They just withdraw. And then the Soviet fighting begins to get whatever food they can because there's never enough. The cauldron spills over and, I mean, it's just apocalyptic, the kinds of descriptions and, and the things that the Germans allow to have happen. And that is a key word. They allow them to have happen. There has been some uh, sort of Wehrmacht um, apologists who tried to say, oh, well, you know, if you take three million prisoners of war, you can't feed them. Everybody knows that it was, you know, trying to almost uh, protect the good name, whatever that means, of the German army. And yet there are numerous instances where there are, are food stuffs. I mean, even to the point of when they're being marched to these places, peasants would sometimes put buckets out on the road so that, you know, there'd be water in the bucket so that the men could get a drink. Remember, it's high summer uh, and the German troops would just routinely kick these buckets over, you know, just unnecessary things. There was an enormous amount of brutality and that was often institutionalized, um, not least of which when uh, the first uh, uh, Cyclone B, what they ultimately used to kill Jews in gas chambers, when that was first being tested, who did they test it on? Soviet prisoners of war. Um, in, in every sense, they were seen to be expendable until the start of 1942, when basically Germany recognises a new problem. Barbarossa hasn't been successful. They have a huge uh, deficit in manpower because they've got to keep providing up manpower for this enormous war, and they haven't got enough uh, in the factories, suddenly they start looking to slave labour and look very differently on their Soviet prisoner population. And what happens then? The death rates are never repeated in the same way, uh, basically because they see self-interest, not because of any benevolent action on behalf of the Nazi state or the German army. Um, and if, if, sorry, I may add, as, if I may add as well, I believe that because the Soviet the justification for the treatment of POWs, they were that the Soviets never signed the Geneva Convention, and that's why as well, and they, they were allowed to treat them this way. And of course, as well, we should mention that even if you, as a Soviet soldier, you were captured as a POW, you were not necessarily welcome back to the Soviet Union as well. That is true. But remember, the Soviet soldiers at that time don't necessarily know that they're not going to be treated well after the fact. Uh, but that is correct. In fact, Stalin's son is captured in uh, July or August 1941. Um, and he, uh, OK, the, the, he, 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 he's killed in 1943, but it's not really clear whether he uh, tried to escape and was shot or whether um, uh, or whether he was killed um uh because some people have speculated oh the shame for him to have to go back having been captured and um yeah so the other thing i would say though is the fact that the soviets hadn't signed the 
uh, Geneva Convention, uh, it, it's not any rationale. That is cited by the Germans of, oh, well, we can't expect any quarter from these guys because you know what they're like. And yeah, there are also atrocities from the Soviets, no question, against Soviet uh, against German prisoners of war. Um, but that doesn't—that's uh, no excuse, or um, that you know, it doesn't change the onus of responsibility for what the Germans must still do. Um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of other explicit orders in terms of, uh, like the famous Commissar Order. Um, you know, they capture Soviet commissars, and basically this Commissar Order. Um, dictates that a German officer, even the lowest level officer, um, yeah, must kill the Soviet commissar because, well, that's what the order states. Uh, so there are even orders that explicitly lead to, I mean, thousands. I think that the the guy who's done the best work on that, Felix Ruma, um, he uh, charted something like 10,000. I mean, these are executions, right, um, being performed against the, the commissars. So a large number. And that's only what he could chart from the files. Not every single commissar who was ever executed did somebody write down a some sort of piece of evidence for a historian subsequently fine. Um, so you know the order is stated, but he did he went through and and it's particularly instructive this this one area because if you are aware of some of these famous German generals like Munstein or like Guderian, they wrote memoirs that sold millions of copies. They're still very well known in the Anglo-American world to this day. And, you know, I don't mind saying some of my students who were, I teach a military academy. So some of them have, you know, on occasion discovered their works and with an interest in this sort of stuff have read them. And in both cases, and many others besides, uh, these men state categorically, oh, yeah, the commissar order. Yes, we knew about it. They couldn't deny not knowing about it because it was an order issued to them. But they just said, oh, well, we never implemented it. Well, when Felix Rimmer did his work, uh, he was able to answer those questions categorically not just some sort of suggestive thing because everything that preceded his work was just case studies um and he said you know you look at those three army groups that i talked about before yeah there's info there's there's evidence in all three army groups that people implemented the commissar order no one's surprised by that if you devolve it to the next level and say what about the 13 armies and the four panzer groups there's evidence in all of them if you take the next lowest level cores there are 44 cores on the eastern front there's evidence in all 44 cores if you Take it to the next level down, the divisions, there's 150 divisions, fully 90% of them have categorical evidence of implementing the Commissar Order, including not just the Panzer divisions. The Panzer divisions are some of the most ubiquitous. They are doing it more than almost anyone. That should surprise us either. Why? They're at the forefront of the German army. They're capturing people first. Oh, then they shoot them because they know what the orders are. And Guderian and Munstein and all the others definitely did pass on those orders in spite of what they said in their memoirs. Their memoirs are often lies. So I said 90% of the divisions there. Oh, sorry, I got that wrong. Sorry, it's not 90%. It's 80% of the divisions have direct evidence of them implementing the Commissar Order. There is another 10%, which it's not categorical in the files. It's just suggested that they implemented the, the Commissar Order. And then in the last 10%, there's just no evidence. Um, that doesn't mean to say they didn't do it. It's just no one ever wrote it down. And as someone who spent a lot of time in that German military archive, yeah, some of the files you open up, people always think there must be some standard for how the Germans wrote their war diaries. But I honestly say they are so different. It depends very much on the individual. Some of them are just weather reports in the worst case. I remember reading this thing and thinking, this is completely useless. Pages of a divisional diary. with It's just weather reports. What did the guy think he was supposed to do here? 
Um, and others are just very light. They just give you our forces reached here, our forces reached here, our forces reached here. And others are more perhaps narrative and give you more details. So the fact that there's a 10% with no evidence isn't suggestive of, well, they didn't do it. Although it may be the case that some of them, you know, some didn't do it. I don't know. But it would seem it's a very small minority, if at all. I, I remember reading Anthony Beavers, not Barrett, but Beavers, work on Second World War, and he mentioned, and I do believe Peter Wilson in his latest work on the called Iron of Blood, where he's talking about... I can see it in the background. <laughs> yeah. So I, re I remember him as well writing that there was a lot of soldiers that were in on the war crimes, that the idea that, that after the Second World War, there were these soldiers were just doing their job, that they didn't that he was mainly the SS who was committing this war crime, but it's as Peter Wilson, I think, and Anthony Beaver points out that there was very few minorities of soldiers who were brave enough to stand up and not do these war crimes that the Wehrmacht and the SS committed and stand against it. 100%. Yeah, look, and you know, that's a relatively new level of historiography so you know it's one of the things again i try to get across to my students they think that this story has always been there like the archives uh haven't changed that's what but it takes a long time for people to understand this you have to remember as well the reason why the story became so perverted is in the immediate aftermath of world war ii there are no archives like we don't have access to them as historians. They're secret, right? They're in the United States, the German ones that, uh, that the Anglo-American world captured. They go to America and we don't get them until the 1960s. So what does anyone who's trying to reconstruct this field go to? Well, we've got all these German generals and they're writing their memoirs. Oh, great. Primary sources. And they write things like, oh, it was shocking that these terrible SS people were doing these terrible things. People took that at face value. And there was, in fairness to the historians of the age, there was no real way to check and balance. That's why I have a lot less sympathy for perhaps the older generation when I started first going to university, because those documents had been available since the 60s, but no one really read them. No one really went in there to recast that 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 history and do the groundwork that we teach our graduate students you're supposed to do go back to the original sources so through the 70s and through the 80s books got written about the german army about the war in the east which repeated a lot of this these tropes about the german army and were based on very poor source material um and it was really only in the 90s that uh there was a, a enough work starting to come out that started to shine a great big spotlight on how uh, much the German army was involved in the criminality. Um, these were very targeted studies. I said before about Christian Streit's book, that was 1979. That book was ahead of its time, trust me, uh, in shining a great big light on this. Um, but it also meant that the military histories, I think, had to sort of catch up. There's always been sort of topics that have been treated as two separate things. The military histories of the war in the East were before these days, before the last sort of 20 years, that was always a separate historiography. So people who did war did war. People who did war of annihilation or Holocaust, they did that. And the two sort of didn't meet. And the historians didn't really read each other. And both fields suffered, I think, because of it, certainly on the military history side. Uh, in fact, it's one of the big things that people don't like about military history. They think, oh, they, they, they ignore the important stuff. That sort of stuff has changed. There's been a real re-emphasis. There's no way you could discuss a, 
the German army in the East these days without seeing that crossover. And it makes a lot of sense too, if you want to understand not just what happened in the war, where armies went, but the big questions like, why are they doing what they're doing? Well, it's not lost on me that these guys are a part of a state that has a certain worldview. That worldview not only allows them to do unbelievable, by our understanding, things like killing people, but it also allows them to do unbelievable things if you're brought up on what most of my officers would be brought up on, which is a Western view of war, which has rules of war, which operates within a certain idea that you know maybe is Klaus Witzian or so. You can't just separate your army from that. And yet in the military history, things like Barbarossa is, it's kind of crazy when you look at what they're seeking to do, how incredibly optimistic they are. And I think maybe in a short number of words, illustrate that to your audience, there's a famous thing that Hitler once says, he says, for the German soldier, nothing is impossible. And I think a lot of his officers, the fact that Hitler believes that doesn't surprise me at all, but the number of German generals who also believe this, and that's a dangerous concept when you're a military guy, because you have got to be very grounded in the hard realities. And that is the long history of the Prussian general staff to do the groundwork, to inform your decision making so that you know what you're deciding is actually possible. The moment you start getting into these propaganda ideas of, well, we'll send five guys out and we'll capture a bridge. This is this is fanciful stuff. And yet it is the product of uh, German propaganda. They love these kinds of stories. If people ever read those kinds of books into what was the German propaganda and just realizing, um, yeah, how militaries are organized or at least are supposed to be organized and how far the Wehrmacht departs from that says a lot about their trajectory in the Second World War. And I want to talk because as you mentioned, the war, speaking of war, speaking of war crimes, Another group that committed war crimes, and what to talk about this was, of course, the SS, because they were another Jewish community, and and then we haven't spoken much about this so far. But what Hitler wanted to do, if he were more successful in Barbarossa, was basically, as my understanding, eradicate eradicate the entire Soviet people, and as we mentioned, Nebelstrom replace it with German German people who would then make the land prosperous. So, of course, that at the SS job where to do this eradicate the Soviet people. And of course, there was, and again, with the picture of, there was a lot of Jewish people there. And I remember reading another book about Barbarossa recently, where you had the Wehrmacht shooting people in line, standing in line, throwing them. And there was this woman who jumped before it was her turn, and she had to hide in this pile of body where, with her son, a Jewish woman, who had to hide in the pile with her son, oh. and she had to make breathing rooms as she been squeezing to death. So you have these brutal stories of SS murdering civilians and, civilians and innocent civilians and Jewish people just because their religion and belief. And I want to talk a little bit about this before we move on to our next topic, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's not the case that uh, there's a sort of a, a piece of paper, a plan that talks about just the eradication of all uh, Slavic peoples or so, but you're absolutely right. There is a recognition that tens of millions are going to have to starve. And the reason is there are, if you look at the Soviet Union, uh, the Ukraine is obviously in the South, that is the breadbasket, that is your highly fertile region and there are many many more people living in northern areas of russia so leningrad moscow and many other towns and cities who 
on their own, those areas don't produce enough food to sustain them. It's clear there's a transfer of the food from the south to the north to sustain the population. Well, in the German plan, the breadbasket of Ukraine is going to be used to feed Europe. And so that food is going to be redirected. And so because they're cold-hearted planners, they look at the northern parts and just, I think the figure is 30 million in the the Grüner Mapper, the the documents that are that that have this, this so-called hunger plan. Um, people have to check some of these figures. I don't want to be saying the wrong thing, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's correct. Alex J K, a good mate of mine, has done a lot of really good work on this and and others besides. But uh, but it's very clear what the Germans are planning. So first of all, that would be a tremendous number of people killed. There is also ethnic cleansing, as that's a modern term that we use now, basically, I think, from the Yugoslavian wars. But that's also what the Germans were planning. These areas, these are going to be German areas, and they're not going to be sharing it, but they're not going to ethnically cleanse everybody. Some will have to move on to wherever, the Urals or, or Siberia, but they also want a working population. These workers, though, won't be in, you know, endowed with any rights or anything. This would just really be slave labor. Um, I mean, it's, again, this kind of apocalyptic, very Nazi view of how the world would work. And we never actually see what it ultimately was going to become, although there's no reason to not to doubt that they would have done something like this. The idea that the Jews would be killed, that's actually not part of the planning for Barbarossa. People confuse that sometimes. It's correct that there are these so-called Einsatzgruppen, these dedicated killing squads, they become dedicated killing squads in a way that the pre-planning for Barbarossa doesn't envisage. In other words, they exist. There's not that many in them. There are three, sorry, there are four of these Einsatzgruppe. Um, they're just A, B, C, and D. And their original sort of mandate is to deal with um, anyone who makes problems, maybe high-level communist functionaries, um, to sort of deal with any problems behind the the lines and so on. What changes in July, August, we don't have an exact date, but there isn't probably an exact date because it seems that the message for the Holocaust, the mass murder of Soviet Jews, is communicated verbally. At least we don't have a piece of paper. Uh, Some people call it the unwritten order. Um, And that means that that order is given at different times to different Einsatzgruppe or SS commanders, and it filters back to the Eastern Front. And what we start start seeing from the end of July and certainly into August is whole Jewish communities just being killed, exactly as you said. Uh, They go into a a, a town, they'll just order all Jews to assemble in the street on pain of death. So they all assemble, then they will march them two or three kilometres outside the town, usually to some pre-prepared anti-tank ditch or a ditch that they themselves will have to dig or has been dug for them and then they're just shot in there these these records are harrowing there's there's detailed records that they themselves make of just day by day by day by day how many jews are being killed the most famous of all of them is at Bayar, that's outside of uh, Kiev. And so in two days, they kill 33,000. That's one of the ones that you often find in the Barbarossa books because it's it's just so big. It just goes to show how efficient they were in this mass murder process. What I find, I mean, that book, that, 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 that example often gets quite a bit of a description, but it belies the totality of it, not because it isn't itself just a scale uh, that we hadn't seen before in the war of mass murder, 
But it's all these little ones. If you get these, um, I can't remember what they're called, the Einsatz Group in Reports or something. There are these nice uh, uh, bound German books now that have reproduced them all. And it's just, it's it's almost the, the 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 fact that it's just day by day. And it's often smaller numbers. You know, it's like today they killed 732, but they separate them between Jewish men, Jewish women, Jewish children, right? It, it, but that's so quite cold. another number so in a day, though. Say again, I didn't catch that. It's quite a lot of number for the day, 700. It's huge. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's huge. It's huge. You're absolutely right. It's absolutely right. That's part of the problem with all of this. It's 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 dwarfed by the big numbers when we look at what is Auschwitz killing every day, what are, what is Baba Yar, what are the ones that you hear about uh it's almost impossible for us to imagine, right? It's just kind of, it's on a scale of, you know, it's hard to picture that many people except maybe a football stadium or something. But, 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 it, you know, it's your point. It's these numbers are still huge and they're just so, there's so much repetition and the process these guys go through. Uh, and there's, a you know, even for these hardened SS killers and some of them aren't hardened SS killers. If anyone's extremely well-read and they've read their Christopher Browning and the ordinary men book and all that kind of stuff, some of them are just police officers and they seemingly do it. That's what's frightening, right? Oh, what's, what's that? What are we doing today? We're shooting anyone. And they're given the option if you don't want to do it. Well, you know, we're in the service. I guess we'll just, today we're shooting Jews. So it's a really frightening um, period, both because of uh, the, the whole scale of it, that macro level, but also if you zoom in, as, as you said, once you start reading, and there's not very many accounts because, of course, almost always these accounts come from perpetrators because no one survives, but when you do get these accounts, it's either, uh, for me, it's so uh, it's so instructive on how seemingly normal, ordinary people are able to do extraordinary things. Um, uh, you know, again, that's that Christopher Browning idea. You would probably, a lot of people listening to this might be inclined to say, oh, David, Nazis aren't normal people. Yeah, the hardened core SS, I would agree. They're probably self-selected on a lot of levels. But the problem is that other example exists. There are instances where German army guys who are accompanying the SS say, hey, give me the rifle. I'd like to take a turn. Um, it doesn't require, and that's what's so frightening. It's also what I like about teaching military students, people who have the profession of arms as a profession, to show them that the line between being a good person serving your country and doing things you would never imagine you would ever do is, I think, a hell of a lot shorter than a lot of people think. And that's particularly pertinent, uh, not to go off topic, but you know, Australia, like other countries, has just been doing a lot of soul searching because it turns out our special forces in Afghanistan, yeah, some of them yeah. were murdering civilians. And these are the most highly I, I remember reading a story on, on the news recently about a civilian the military group in Australia where he was 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 talking about how he was in misbehaving and how he used and Taliban are yeah. put for you know a Halloween party or something. I don't remember the story exactly, but you do have some of these brutes in the Australian army as well. I remember watching news about that a while ago. And I think that's part of the, the question here. Look, when I look at some of the books that just on your background there, you, you've mm-hmm. obviously got some of the literature that I mean. Part of the problem is it's not what people think, oh, there's evil people in the world. I don't really believe in this. These people never walk around thinking, oh, I'm evil. Mm. It's just a process of brutalization. And Afghanistan is a 20-year-long conflict where, you know, 
uh, okay, and maybe I shouldn't go down a whole Afghanistan path in Australian Army and everything, but it's not different from Barbarossa in that sense, right? You're on the mm. Eastern Front. You've been sold the idea that this is untermensch, right? These are these are subhuman people. You feel physically endangered, right? There's, there's danger everywhere. There's danger at the front, but there's also danger in the rear. And if somebody in your unit says, right, we're walking into this town, careful, there's there could be partisans here or there could be Jews or whatever, and then someone decides that they're going to shoot someone, you're really in a position, and a guy named um, Kuna has done a lot of work on comradeship in the German army, and he basically says, look, part of the problem is even if you sat there and said, well, that's not right, we just shot someone, we shouldn't really be doing that, the moment you say anything or do anything, you're endangering the one source of safety you have, which is your unit. Your comrades keep you safe. They look out for you. If you're ostracized within that community, you are in an extremely dangerous part of the world in an extremely dangerous war. And not only do you not have a safety area, some, you know, the, the, the psychological support of comrades and everything, they will treat you, they will haze you very, very badly, especially if you're seen to be the one sticking up for what they see as the enemy. So, you know, the, the, the dynamics and the controlling dynamics of being inside a German unit are pushing you into most people would likely conform. Most people would likely go along with it and maybe even not unwillingly. They see the same dangers. They're subject to the same propaganda. Um, so, you know, not that I'm making any excuse for it, but it is our job to understand what happened and how so many men got so involved. Um, but again, my final point, that's what I like talking about and thankfully that I'm given free reign to do that with military, prospective military officers, because I think being aware of it is the first step to defending yourself against it. You know, brutalization is a thing. Yeah. And. I want to talk about another topic as well, because we have to move on. We have a lot to talk about still. And that is propaganda for the corporation uh, Barbarossa. As you know, Goebbels, the head of propaganda ministry in the Third Reich, he, but because as you know, as a, time went on, then we realized it wouldn't be a quick war. And of course, with the soldier, but censorship was a thing as well with soldiers' letter, but some got through. So how, how would you, how would the Goebbels, Turn Barbarossa with his propaganda, with, with the, of course, as we know, generals weren't necessarily censored as well, and they didn't get away with what they were writing at home. So some people did have a grasp of what was actually going on in the Eastern Front, but how did how did the propaganda ministry make yeah. share, share the war? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess some of the most famous visuals, if you ever look at the, you know, any documentaries, they are using this Wachenschau uh, imagery, which often shows, you know, Germans surging forward and tanks and planes and all this. And sometimes it's highly misleading because of everything I said before. You know, we almost, and I grew up on that stuff too, thinking, oh, it's a mechanized juggernaut. And that's actually not the case. Goebbels becomes aware relatively early um, even though he is absolutely national socialist and a complete devotee to Hitler, he becomes worried, uh, I think, about September of 41, where he starts to realize we have promised the world here. Like everything is a success. Everything is moving forward. Everything is decisive. Every day it's another great victory for the German army. But I think what he starts to see is actually the front is starting to slow down, um, that there are still major Soviet formations on the other side of the front. His worry is because he has his finger on the pulse and he is actually a very good propagandist, even if he's a terrible human being. He does recognize, 
you can oversell things. And if you oversell it and people in their heads then conclude, hang on, there's a difference between what I read in the in the papers or what I see on the Wochenschau and what I'm seeing in the letters, as you said, from the people I'm reading or hearing in the in the line at the at the local supermarket as I'm buying things with my with my ration card. If those two stories don't correlate, he sees the problem and he's correct that a credibility gap starts to emerge. And what he's always seen as success is if the story that's officially being told is correlated with what people believe is actually happening. So when you say, we're the Wehrmacht, we're doing all these wonderful things and France is going so well, and then everyone sees a, a victory six weeks later, oh, they're entirely inclined to believe 100% what they're being told. Yes, this is the greatest army in the world. And yes, Hitler is the world's greatest uh, uh, Feldherr, like Marshall. Um and the problem is he is gauging correctly. We are overselling Barbarossa. I don't know that we're going to have this level of success. Now, it's not like Goebbels completely dominates that space. I know that's what everyone thinks. There are others in the mix who also have a hand in propaganda. So um, a guy named Dietrich, um, who is uh, the press chief for the for the Nazi state, in early October... He has a private meeting with Hitler and he is selling the same thing. He's selling the German war effort to foreign correspondents. And then he goes out, I think this is the 8th, 9th, somewhere around there of October. And he basically says, uh, the war in the East is decided. And the war is basically won. This is right at the beginning of the Typhoon Offensive, another huge big encirclement at a place called Viasma and Briansk. So it's a double encirclement. And it's just taken place. And there's a huge number, something like 650,000 Soviet prisoners of war. So huge victory for the Germans. And that's where Dietrich basically comes out and says this. The war in the East has been decided. And that is basically signal to the German press that we can now run headlines like that. Goebbels is incandescent. If you read his diary at the time, his, his, he's been thinking for some weeks we're overselling it. And now we've actually taken the step of saying that the war is now won. Expectations are sky high. Everyone thinks this is going to be over in a couple of weeks. And he's seeing the, the opposite. The autumn rains have begun. The, the Wehrmacht is slowing down. He's got all kinds of sources of information, which are unfiltered, of course, because they're coming directly to him. He's quite correct. Um, and that is very much the beginning of for certain people who are starting to question the regime. What do they do if they don't believe what they're reading is actually the truth? That might sound odd to us because people well, in these days of a lot of mistrust of media and so on, but not back then. Then they start to take the punt, not a huge number, but it begins the process of let's listen to the foreign broadcasts. And then they start to get a completely different picture of the war. And there's increasingly this no, sense of We should add as well, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but we should no, add no. as well that foreign broadcasts were banned. You had to be really discreet if you wanted to listen to a foreign broadcast. Absolutely. The, if you were, you could be shot at worst case, I think, if you were found or sent to camp, if you were found listening to BBC or any other broadcast from abroad. 
I was going to say, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, shock, but you, you, it's certainly serious. It's certainly serious if you're caught listening to them. Certainly, I think there's big de- degrees too. Like, like if you're just listening to it, that's one thing. If you're taking that in any way, disseminating it. So there are rules for what you can do. It also exists for German soldiers. Like they're not allowed to write about any of the Soviet propaganda that they're exposed to. So they, you know, these are these are rules that are sent. Um, and uh, actually, and, and, and again, I'm, so, I'm sorry for interrupting, right? but I'm, I'm yeah. just. Just to remember them, it's an episode of Allo Allo that deals with this, I think, where they have a radio. It's quite funny, but, but, but they have to hide it from the Germans. So I, do, I do remember Allo Allo doing an episode about this ages ago. It's kind of nice to see someone who is definitely younger than me who knows about <laughs> Allo Allo. It's a bit like, uh, I don't mind saying when I was in Germany, I was shocked one day when I turned on the television, and we, I, we hardly ever watch television, but Oh, God, now I forgot. Oh, I don't know how, if it plays in Norway, but Anglo-Americans listening will know what I'm talking about. Hogan's Heroes, which is a show that's completely fictional that plays in a German prisoner of war camp from the late 1960s, I think. Uh, and it's basically completely absurd. They've got, you know, it's the Americans and the British who basically run the camp. The Germans are all stupid. And they've got like whole hangers and things underneath the camp that they're conducting all this sabotage of German forces. But the funny thing is I grew up watching that as a kid, right? Just a funny show about World War II. Uh, Germans are stupid or Nazis are stupid, although most people weren't Nazis. They were German Luftwaffe officers, in fact. Um, uh, and uh, and yet that was playing on German TV. And I just thought, oh, this is no end of interest. I really, at that moment, wanted to find a German who watched this show and said, how do you, how do you see this? Do you laugh at the right places? I mean, I'm sure they do. Most Germans, uh, this is another nice comment, perhaps uh, as we move toward the back end of this this uh, whole conversation, Germans are really good, in my view, at engaging with this terrible past. It's not what people think. People have said they to have a bit of it, Australia. Oh, these days, you're absolutely right. Like, if you look at RFD, so this alter- Alternativa for Deutschland, these right-wing neo-fascist uh, uh, people, yeah, they can all go to hell. They're all just, you know, apologists for Nazis, zero sympathy, right? Um, but if I think about the mainstream of, of Germany, okay, maybe I, I have got no finger on the pulse. I was clearly in an educated circle. I was living in Berlin, God. But but by and large, I saw a lot, you know, when I talk to people about what it is I did, right? And I was, I was, I, st- I went to Germany to study for my PhD. So I, I was clearly engaged with, was I wanted a topic? And I'd have to say, well, I'm talking about the, the war in the East. I got a lot of very positive engagement. What was interesting was when I came back to Australia, people would say, oh, ooh, that's, that's a difficult topic with the Germans, right? You know, don't mention the war, all that kind of thing. And I used to think, no, that's just not the case at all. They're more, nobody there is defending Hitler's regime. Nobody there feels like, oh God, someone shouldn't dig that stuff up. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The problem I had at the Humboldt University was why are you doing a military topic? Military topics are not what we do. You know, you should be doing something about, you know, serious history of the Third Reich, criminality. That's the stuff that we do. Military is a bit taboo. Um, I don't know if that's changing. This is now going back uh, sort of 15 years. But certainly at the time, uh, there was some very real questioning going on. And look, maybe, you know, it's not like in the Anglo-American world. Certain universities certainly don't engage with military history. Uh, They don't have military historians. And I've heard, I don't know if it's always true, but I've heard people saying, oh, it's a hostile environment there. Look, to me, it's a big wide world. You can study whatever history you want, right? 
everything is on the table. You can do the history of table making. I couldn't care less. I don't know why it's a problem to do military history. In fact, when you consider the the, the extent to which the human uh, race are really, really good at killing each other, the idea that we wouldn't study that is seems strange to me. And it doesn't say anything about your politics, right? People always think people who study military history must be somehow very right-wing or even extreme right-wing. Um, no, not in my experience at all, knowing many, many historians. In fact, I'd say a lot of them are actually very left. Uh, uh, but it doesn't matter. We're in a scholarly world. It's all about your evidence. It's all about your methodology. You can say whatever you want. You can defend it on that basis, not on your politics. I did that argument. I read, I read quite a few books on the Second World War and the Third Reich and Hitler himself. And, of mm. course, I'm a friend of mine, Jared, and I'm practically a Nazi because I read some of the, of the books about this topic. But in and it's again, it's a joke. But, of course, you know, it's... Uh, I find the opposite to be the case, as you said. It's making even more anti-Nazi and anti-fascist. But really, the more you read about it, the more it comes out what the regime actually was about, and how you know the Second World War from the German point of view, what actually how how it were played out. So reading more more about the Third Reich and, of course, about the Second World War, it's kind of making more an anti-Nazi if anything. Oh, such a good comment! Such a good comment, and let's link that back to these art. FD or Pagida or any of these, take any other country and their various extreme right-wing people. It's interesting, isn't it? Every time they mm. reference the Second World War or their fascist movement, whether that's in Italy or wherever, how often they get it wrong. And you just have to conclude, you know nothing of the of the brand of politics of which you supposedly represent or what you know is so perverted as mm. to be fictional. Um, yeah, people who, it's a great point. People who know this stuff, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you know, there's no way. You They're probably the least fascist to take people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how can you read these abysmal histories of, of just, you know, what the criminality and how that works and, and maybe not even the big narratives, the, the David Cesarini or someone who, who writes that macro narrative of the Holocaust you kind of lose the individual. I find it's the it's the individual accounts, uh, the people who, you know, Eli Wiesel's night or someone who went through this stuff, who experienced this firsthand, those are gut-wrenching um, just because it's so personalised. You, you relate as an individual to an individual's experience. Reading big numbers about death camps, it's still terrible, but it's harder to actually personalise that. In fact, Timothy Schneider, maybe that's a good, you know, concluding comment. Yeah. He makes the point in his book on Bloodlands, he says, you know, when you look at the the vast scale of the killing that takes place in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, the numbers are shocking, but it's our job as historians, not just to report those numbers, but to try and turn those numbers back into people, which I think is a really nice way of, you know, what is the point of what we do? Um, ultimately, yes, understanding war, understanding criminality, but just uh, it, it feels to me in, in those moments where you read those horrific things as some kind of epitaph to the people who died that, okay, but at least someone is writing about what these criminal people did uh, and, you know, hopefully learn from them. I mean, Bloodline is such a good book that I'm glad you brought it up because it's such brilliant and written and chance are home in the United, especially with Ukraine and what's going on there right now. It's it's an important book to read about the 30s and what led up to the Second World War. I think everyone should read it, especially. And I feel like it's kind of relevant to this episode as well. Mm. 
Yeah, no, to- totally true. I, maybe as another, I know I'm doing a lot of concluding statements here, but one mm-hmm. of the things I would just say about Barbarossa, perhaps relative to Ukraine, as a person who spent, you know, uh, 25 years researching this war, the Second World War, it has been, I don't mind saying, frightening on some levels to watch what's happened in Ukraine uh, elicit so many parallels in my mind. Um, you know, the, the idea that the Russians would launch an invasion with such optimistic goals. Well, therein lies Barbarossa. Oh, yeah, but we're overwhelming them. And then you go and look at things like Bucha, right? You, the mm. ubiquitous criminality, right? Hundreds killed in that place. P- people just strewn around, the, don't even pick them up, right? That kind of, especially when they're framing it, the irony of anti-Nazism, mm. Yeah, it's it's you know, I often thought that something like that couldn't be replicated, couldn't be replicated by a country like Russia, because they're the ones who suffered a lot of this in Barbarossa. And, you know, they were the victims of this, uh, uh, this, this criminality and all the rest of it. Uh, And yet that's exactly what's happened. But I would also say one of the problems in understanding Barbarossa's history is a lot of the Russian histories don't necessarily have great accounts. And maybe it comes back to our other point. If you don't read honest history and and learn the correct lessons, I guess, you know, for someone like Putin, who likes to quote and talk about World War II a lot, um, it does seem that, again, he missed the most important points because uh, he's got this so wrong. And what he's allowed to have happen there, I, I, I yeah, I, again, I just see a lot of parallels in that. Also, what's yeah. undermining operational successes, not that we spend a lot of time on that, but that's a lot of those themes, again, replicated in the Russian army. But um, And again, we did haven't brought this up yet, but as you know, in the Second World War, Stalin would hesitate in using officers to kill retreating soldiers. And as we've seen, the Wagner group is, of course, no longer with us as in the, war, in the Ukraine war. But still, when they used the Wagner group to shoot retreating Russian soldiers in 2022, this was, to me, it was just crazy to think that this would happen in, in today's age. And not, you think you were back in Second World War where Stalin had no problem killing his own soldiers if they were retreating. That's another good example, yeah. And again, if you look at Roger Reese's book on, it's called Why Stalin's Soldiers Fight, he basically goes through this and he shows the units that were forced into these draconian systems of punishment and discipline perform really poorly. And there's other Soviet units that he looks at where when they're treated well, given good food, given good training, given good officers, surprise, surprise, they perform really well. So the lessons from the Second World War, while, you know, I can't account for the Russian army, I know nothing about the Russian army today or why, but it is so fundamentally true based on not just Reese's book, but umpteen numbers of studies that have replicated the exact same thing in every other war that anyone ever bothers to study for these kinds of things like motivation and ideas. The more draconian you are, the worse it is for your men. They don't fight for this. Um, They fight out of fear, but but they don't fight for any other reason. And that long-term doesn't do you well. Uh, I don't think it's helping the Russian forces. Um, but again, that's to the Russians how they learn or choose not to learn their own lessons. Their own lessons. We are going to end soon, but, but I want to talk about one thing because they do, the Soviets do eventually reach Moscow. And, sorry, the Germans, not the Soviets, they do mm. eventually reach Moscow and they do have tanks 
right outside the Kremlin, of, almost outside of Stalin's office. So you, you have sold very much soldiers jumping from airplane, airplanes into the streets of Moscow. And there's there mainly two things I want to focus on here. That is the Germans in the Soviet capital, and of course, the plan for Leningrad, which or St. Petersburg, which was quite brutal, as they were planning to, you know, eradicate the starve of the entire population and right then raise it to the ground. Mm, true, true. Um, yep, you're right. Of course, part of the problem is, as I said before, we have some of these German plans, and then, you know, there's the question mark of what would have happened, and it's a little bit hard to know because, of course, in mm. these cases, they don't actually get there. But I think we can, uh, on very safe ground, conclude nothing good. Um, yeah, and Leningrad was going to be, I think I think I read somewhere they're going to put it into a lake. <laughs> Return it back to the swamps as Peter the Great built it out of the swamps. Um, this is very, you know, national socialist, those kinds of ideas. Um, I don't know that they would have actually flattened the city. I mean, you know, there's, there's palaces, there's great infrastructure there that could only have served Germany. But then who knows? Who knows if Hitler says it? Uh, you know, people might do it. So, sure. And of course, one last thing I want to talk about is the uh, Anglo-Alliance aid to Soviet Russia that would be essential. And of course, as we discussed before, you know, I made an episode about the Soviet invasion of Berlin a while ago, and we discussed this briefly as well, that this, this uh, Alliance aid to the Soviet Union was essential in the victory of the Second World War. Yeah, true. Also something that uh, certainly post-war, it's, you know, like everything, there's a historiography and that was not something that was invoked for Soviet for, or Soviet uh, people writing about this war that was ne- always underplayed or even outright dismissed. Um, and that's continued on with, uh, you know, Putin's regime. They also don't like it. There's been a lot of good studies in the West uh, done about how uh, Lend-Lease fits into um, the Soviet plan. It's not what people often conclude. I mean, people talk about, you know, which tanks did they get or which fighters did they get? The Soviets, for the most part, looked at a lot of that material kind of disparagingly. They produced good fighters, good tanks, good guns themselves. So when, for example, I think it was the British Matilda turns up, there was a funny comment that I read somewhere that the Soviets were trying to figure out how in the world the British considered this to be a good tank. Like, why did they send us this? This is terrible relative to what we've got. And then they sort of came to the conclusion it must be an African tank. It must be built for mm. conditions in Africa. That's why it's so that the, the tracks are so thin, the armor is so thin. Maybe that's what you need in Africa. Um, so you know they're kind of dismissive of the actual uh, weaponry, although that is also a little bit relative. In the Battle of Moscow during the period of what they call the first protocol, so the first period of Lend-Lease. There's, I, Alexander Hill's done a lot of good on this, about just what percentage of the tanks the Soviets are using are British. And it's quite a amazing number. I can't remember what the percentage is. It's 20% or something like that, um, which you don't really think that the Soviets are driving around 20% of British tanks in one of their big battles. Um, but the American stuff is very slow in that part of the war. So it is overwhelmingly British uh, material. But certainly the story of Lend-Lease is boring stuff, at least boring for people who like to read military history. People like to read military history want to talk about tanks and battles and things. But if I said to you, you know, shoes and 
tinned food and obviously trucks is another big thing but all kinds of things if you look at the lists of what they send them it's extraordinary like they're long long lists and it's things that you don't even think about like x-ray machines and just sheer tonnage of raw aluminium you know but this is lend lease and that stuff is really important to moving those Soviet armies, feeding those Soviet armies, which is, you know, you cannot understand 1943 to 45 without understanding Lend-Lease and its role. It's very much the, the, the logistics or the background or even the industrial, but it is no less important. Um, and, and, and on top of that, there are still Sherman tanks and things like that that are on the Eastern Front. So there is still a military component to it all. Hmm. And I think we're going to round it up there. Of course, if you haven't already, you should check out our episode, on, as I mentioned, on the Soviet invasion of Berlin, which I think this episode rather led nicely up to, because we kind of begin with, begin with leading up to Stalingrad and talking about Stalingrad before the great retreat of Barbarossa. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think we got a decent understanding of what Barbarossa was about and how propaganda and everything worked out. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course, before you go, do you have any social media you want to share or any links you want to be, to put in the description of this episode? And of course, where can people buy your book, Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat, Eight the East? Oh, in the East. Um, the, in the oh, East, I, sorry. That's a good, that, that, that's a good question. Um, the, uh, I guess, just all the major places, Amazon and so on. I'm not on any social media because uh, I'm the deputy head of my school and that already takes all my time and I've never been on social media. I'm not making a big statement about social media. I don't care. Uh, I'm not on it. And then I got off it and now I hate it or something. All these people mm-hmm. tell me stories about what it is. I've never been on it. So uh, I, I have no interest. I just don't care. Um but uh, I have actually some academic friends who say, no, 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 stay plugged in. There's some good academic debates going on there. But all I ever hear is negativity. So I feel I don't need that in my life. So besides, there's so many good That's history fair. books. Who, who, who needs it, right? So you can't miss what you've never had. Um, otherwise, yeah, people can pick up the books. I've got a couple of, I've got a whole series, probably way more than people ever want to really know about this war. But uh, look, I find it interesting. So if they do too, good on them. Otherwise, you know. I hope they found something interesting today. And thank you very much, mate. Good questions. Thank you very much for coming on. This has been with that H12. We are we are available on social media and Instagram, but for that H12, Twitter or X, if yeah, as you must call it these days, under that H12 with one L. Unfortunately, Twitter would not allow us two L's in the name. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review of the podcast that would help us out a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe if you are on Spotify. Consider giving us five stars. That would be nice too. And my name is Alan, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.